thing. Hey, guess what? We're going to do Esther today. What? What a surprise. Yeah. Shoot. Uh. And today we're looking at what a difference a day makes. When I was a kid, my dad uh, was kind of, uh, he had an eclectic uh, album collection. And so we listened to all kinds of music. He really loved jazz. He really loved the blues. I can remember hearing Ella Fitzgerald, Newport News' finest, right? Born in Newport News, Ella Fitzgerald singing, What a difference a day makes, 24 little hours. A lot of people say I sound like her. I don't know. No, really, don't say, it's fine. What a difference a day makes. That's what we're looking at, Esther chapter 6. But to get into that, I want to talk about, because we're going to see this incredible reversal of events, and I want to talk to you about a, a historical reversal of events that has happened in our recent history. I want to go back to 2004. All right, On October the 16th, 2004, the whole city of Boston, Massachusetts, was in an incredibly dark Depression. Now, my wife is from Boston, so I'm, I feel an attachment there to Boston and to the Red Sox. Not, not to the Patriots at all, but the Red Sox. And on October the 16th, 2004, the mighty Red Sox had lost to the New York Yankees. They gave up 19 runs. They got crushed. But here's the deal. This is what makes this such a momentous time. They were in the best of a seven playoff series with the Yankees to see who goes to the World Series. They lost the first three games. October 16th was the third game of the series. In a race to reach four, if you lose the first three, you're in a deep hole, right? And so the whole city of Boston was just like bummed out because the previous year, they had the series in hand. And on the last game to clinch the series, they lost the game in the last inning, at the last out, they lost the game. It was a crushing blow. So they came back the next year. They worked even harder. They had a great season. They meet the Yankees again, and they lose the third game. They, lose, they give up 19 runs. And so it seems like now, a year later, after that devastating defeat, they're in 2004 now, they're not even putting up a fight. And, and the, talk, the sports talk shows in Boston, they're vicious when they're winning. But when they're losing, it gets ugly. It gets ugly. They talked about firing everyone. They talked about assassinating the owner. They talked about getting rid of all those, you know, those prima donna players who think they're all that. Rather than even think about that they'd had a very successful season, all they were doing was bemoaning their bad luck. And if you remember this, for those who, they attributed it to the curse of the Bambino. All right? In 1915, 1917, and 1918, the Boston Red Sox won the World Series with a player who was the greatest young player in the game at the time, a young man named Babe Ruth. This is a picture of him at one of those World Series. Babe Ruth in a Boston Red Sox uniform. You won't see those very often. Because that year... They won the World Series in 1918, and their owner, inextricably, they, they, they have no, they cannot figure out why. No one to this day understands why. He inexplicably traded the greatest player alive and the greatest player who has ever lived to the New York Yankees. The hated rivals, the Yankees, they traded the best player in the whole league, 
and the best player who's ever lived. He was a great pitcher. He was a great hitter. He was a good fielder. He had everything. From 1918 on till 2004, the Red Sox never won a World Series. And they lost in perplexing ways. They lost crazy ways. They found weird ways. So weird that this idea started coming up in, in the 70s, the 60s and 70s and into the 80s. There is a curse on this team. And it is the curse of the Bambino. It's because we traded Babe Ruth to those stinking Yankees. And the Yankees never quit winning and the Red Sox never quit losing. And so... They went into the fourth game. The game went into extra innings. They won. And everyone was, eh, we're still down three to one. They went into the next game. They, they won in 14 innings. And then they started rolling. And they won the next, and they clinched the series. In an incredible reversal of events, they were down. First team to ever do it, they were down 3-0 in games, and they turned around and won the series. They went to the World Series. They were on such a high. They crushed the St. Louis Cardinals. If there's any Cardinals fans here my condolences on that. They got crushed, and the curse was broken. It was a great reversal. In fact, the, uh, the Boston Globe, uh, one of their columnists, he, he, he wrote an article. He called it the, the Grand Reversal, and, and then his first sentence was, in caps, the curse is broken. And so we're going to look at a passage here where we see this incredible reversal, a dramatic reversal. And so let me just review for a moment what we've gone over previously. In chapter one, we saw this woman named Vashti. She's married to Xerxes. He, in a drunken party, he wants her to come out and dance. And the implication seems to be, you know, in her birthday suit. And she said no. And so he had a, he had a little uh, pity party and a hissy fit. And uh, he got together all his drinking buddies, and they figured out a way to do this, and they can get a new king, kick her out, get a new queen, I mean, kick her out. And so this is where Esther enters in. Esther is, is, is a Jew. She's a stranger in this land. She's been raised by her uncle Mordecai. And so there's a huge contest to see who can be the next queen. And Esther is taken. This is, this is, this is exploitation and rape. There's, there's no doubt about it. She's taken and she's groomed along with all these other hundreds of other women. And whoever pleases the king for one night gets to be queen. And she does. So in chapter 3, she's become queen merely because she's beautiful. And Haman, who is the chief advisor to the king, we are introduced to him. He hates Mordecai. He hates the Jews. And so he concocts a plan. He convinces the king that these people... They're insubordinate. They're not good citizens. They're, they're subversive. They're dangerous. They must be dealt with. So he tells the king, let's, let's issue an edict. Because the king is like, oh my goodness, really? This is what these people are like. We need to do something. Because uneasy, you know, Shakespeare talked about this. Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. It's always, it's always, they're always looking, kings are always looking over their shoulder. They're always looking around at who may, who, who may kill them who may try to take their place. You know, probably, probably this is shown very well, probably in the recent HBO series, The Game of Thrones. And, um, and some of you, I know what's going on. Some of you are like, did my pastor watch The Game of Thrones? No, I didn't. Not judging you if you did, but some of you were judging me pretty hard right then. I really love George R.R. R. Martin. I love the author of the books that that was adapted from. 
And so I know the story. I've read quite a bit of it. All the intrigue, all the backstabbing, all the machinations that go on to create a king or create a queen. And then once they get there, they know this is how I got here. I mean, Xerxes Xerxes knows, how did he get on the throne? Okay, he got on the throne because he was the son of the previous king. Who got on the throne because he murdered the king before? So he knows how this works. And so Mordecai comes to him and says, look, look, you got a problem here. These are subversive people. They're dangerous. So there's an edict. And king says, what should we do? He says, "Uh, let's issue an edict. Let's just make on a certain day that it'll be legal. It'll be legal for that day, kind of a purge thing, right? It'll be legal for that day to kill Jews and take their stuff. And so, so that edict is issued. And, and we come up on, as we see this, we see that now uh, in chapter 4, Mordecai hears about this. He weeps. And Esther is isolated in the castle. She has no clue what's going on. She doesn't even know about the edict. And so she's asking him, why are you weeping? And so this, this goes back and forth. And finally, we come to this. Uh, he tells her, you need to go to the king. She tells him, you know, remember how I got here? I got here because he was pleased with me physically. But he hasn't asked me up to his bedroom in over a month. And he's not sleeping alone all those nights. He just didn't want me. And if I go in to see him without him asking me to come in, the penalty for that is death unless he hands out, puts out his scepter and I, I touch it, then I, my life is spared. But I, I, I think I'm going to die. And so we see Esther torn between two worlds. Torn between the world of being a part of the people of God and torn between the world that she lives in. And balancing, just like we have to do. Just like we have to do all the time in work situations, in class situations, in dorm situations, in home situations, in, 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 in our neighborhood, with our friends, with our family. There's two worlds involved. There's two worlds involved. God makes it very clear. You are my child. You belong to the kingdom of God. This world is not your home. This is not everything there is. So Mordecai tells Esther, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. He challenges her. Step out in faith. God has put you in this place. He's given you a place where you can bring a voice that no one else can bring. And she's like, well, it might, I might get killed. He goes, you think you're going to, if you don't go, you think you're going to live? There's an edict. It's legal to kill Jews. And so finally she says, get everybody together, fast, pray. I will go to the king. And even though it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. She speaks these words of faith. She says, look, okay, this is it. I'm going to go to the king. I'm going to lay it all on the line. My life is on the line. I'm going to go for the sake of my people. I'm going to go. Which brings us to the theme of this book we've talked about all the time. God delivers his people through his servant who intercedes for them in order to rescue them. God delivers his people through his servant who intercedes for them in order to rescue them. And so in chapter 5, we see Esther's plan unfold 
She's incredibly, incredibly wise, and she has this brilliant plan. She, she goes in little steps, one step, so as not to, not to fee, seem like it, things are happening too fast, not to, not to alarm Xerxes. So she goes in through the doors that she's not supposed to enter, but she kind of stays in the back, and there's people all around. And then finally he notices her, so she comes forward, and he grants her favor. She touches the scepter. He says, what do you want, Esther? He says, I, he understands I realize you just risked your life. So you want something. What is it? I'll give it. What is it? Name it. But she's very smart. She said, I need to play this. I need to come little baby steps, you know? And so she says, I I have this banquet I've prepared for you. Come to my banquet. You and Haman. Haman. You know, can you imagine her? You and Haman. That little side eye. And um, so... The king goes, and he loves it. He's great. She, does, she puts all this work. This banquet goes great. And he goes, okay, what is it? What is it you want? And she goes, this is it. Come to the banquet I'm giving tomorrow, and I promise you I'll tell you what this is all about. And he's like, yeah, I'm loving these banquet things. Okay, let's go. You know? And so he says, okay. So we're at the end of chapter 5. That's where we left off. They've had the banquet. The king is pleased. Esther's, things are looking good. Haman is excited. He feels like he's even more and more on the inside. He's the top guy other than the king. He goes home. He tells everybody, you know what? I'm the baddest dude around. I got all these kids. I got this. I got money. I, got, I, can, I can kick anybody's butt that I want to. You know, he's just like, this is me. I'm so great. This is awesome. Except for one thing. That Mordecai, that Jew, I hate him. I hate him. So his wife and his buddies who've been helping him say, here's what you do. You erect a gallows, okay? It's not a gallows like we think of a hanging. It's a pole. And what they do is they impale people. That was how they uh, killed people back then. They impale them. Now it's called, in many versions, you'll see it's called hanging. If you see hanging in the Bible, it's, probably, it's not a noose. It's probably impalement. I'm looking at the time, which brings us to a cool little rabbit trail, Okay? I don't know if you've ever, I remember years and years ago talking to some people and they said, there's mistakes in the Bible. And I said, really, I, I, you know what? I, I haven't found them, but if you tell me where you think there's a mistake, I would gladly look into it to see what you think is the mistake. And the guy says, okay, Judas, how'd he die? Have you ever read that? There's two accounts. One is he hung himself. One is he fell headlong and his gut spilled out. Which, yeah, great movie though, right? It could go be a good movie. And the guy goes, so what happened? And so that's an interesting question because some people have addressed that question. One guy said, oh, well, he hung himself and then finally the rope broke and he fell out. I'm like, come on, that's kind of cheesy. You're really reaching on that one. But in a society where people were killed by impaling, and we do know sometimes people killed themselves by self-impaling, it makes perfect sense that Judas made a stake, got on a rock, and fell headlong on it. Why? Because once you start leaning, you're committed to go through with it. And he impaled himself, which other people have done, which is what hanging means in those days, and his guts spilled out. You're welcome. Okay, now, 
Just want to, okay, I didn't think of that on my own. Other people, you know, it's not, not like I'm just some brilliant scholar that thought of that. So, so we have this, now we're in this situation. Haman is going to kill Mordecai. He gets up early in the morning. He's going to go kill Mordecai. He's going to go get the king's permission to kill Mordecai. Esther's plan doesn't work until the afternoon. So now we've got a problem. Mordecai may die before Esther has a chance to get her plan done. So let's look what it says. First of all, I want you to see there's a random discovery. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. And it was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Big Thana. I love that name. If I had one more son, there'd be a Big Thana in this world. <laughs> that's, that's just a bad name, right? All right. It's found that Mordecai had exposed Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. And what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. So let's just, what's going on here? Okay, we see now, we see happenstance. We see coincidence, right? This is unbelievable. This is the invisible, I believe, the invisible hand of God working. The king can't sleep. What is a good cure for insomnia? Tell me how great I am. Read to me how awesome I am. This is a form of entertainment. You know, they didn't have, it's like if you got up, you couldn't sleep one night, and you got up and you decided to watch a movie. You decided to play a little WoW, or you decided to do some sort of a game, some, whatever you decided to do, or read a book. It's a form of entertainment. And the king says, read to me, right? He says, read to me. And so it's the record of his reign, it's, 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 we know, I mean, this, some of this stuff has been validated by archaeology. It was, it was a lot of books written about Xerxes and the record of his reign. And uh, of all the books they picked, they picked the one where we come up on this assassination pl- plan, assassination plot by Big Thana and Teresh. I'm going to say Big Thana as much as I can. I just want you to know it's going to keep coming up. Now, it says they're guards. And the first thing, it kind of like, what, two guards got together, you know, like, like two guys guarding the front gate at Fort Eustis suddenly decide they're going to assassinate the president or something? No. Okay. These are not just guards. First of all, earlier when it talks about it, it talks about that they're eunuchs. Now that places them immediately into the inner chambers. These guys are responsible for security for the king. So you see what a, see what a dangerous plot this is. These are insiders. They have the wherewithal. They have the know-how. They're often in that, right, with the king in that area, quite possibly sometimes just them and the king. So this assassination plot is a very real assassination plot. It's very doable. Mordecai, through connections, heard about it, told the king, and the king was saved. And it tells us those two men were impaled, just like what what Haman wants to do to Mordecai. And so... He says, what's been done for this guy? It doesn't mention what's been done for him. And they said, nothing's been done. Now, Persian kings, much like other shrewd rulers, they were known for their lavish rewards for, for loyalty. Um, Herodotus talks a little bit about Xerxes. He talks about how Xerxes had two faithful sea captains that had captained two of his big warships, and, and they had long careers and illustrious careers. And, and when they were getting older, he, he gave them huge estates as a reward for being loyal to him. There is uh, another, we found a scrap that seems to talk about another time that Xerxes, someone tried to assassinate him, and the person that thwarted the assassination was given a province. I mean, that's like giving a kingdom, right? That's like him saying, hey, here's Texas. Thank you. 
It's all yours, you know? Yeehaw! Okay, like, like that, all right? They're also known not only for, a re- but for their swift and terrible punishments. And so then people ask, how is Mordecai overlooked? Well, it's very, very, very easy how that could happen. A plot is revealed in the inner circle. So what's going to happen? Some of his most trusted servants are going to grab Xerxes. They're going to bundle him out of that area. All right? It's, it's, it's just like, you know, when, when 9-11 happened, and everyone, the, the first thought is, what's going to happen to the president? They hustled him onto Air Force One, and they took off, and they stayed up there for a while until they knew they could land safely. Get him away from any threats that we know of. So that all of a sudden, over Georgia, when he was in Georgia, I believe it was at the time, all of a sudden, Air Force One takes off and four fighters come and just hang around right next to it as it flies in big circles. Why? Get him away from the danger. What happened with Xerxes? Get him away from the danger. It's very easy to see how in the the mess of that, it it just got overlooked. Mordecai was overlooked. And the king realizes, gotta do this. If I'm going to keep people loyal, I need to make a reward for him. So on this particular night, when the king couldn't sleep, this night, which is the only night this would make a difference. In this book, the only book that would make a difference, he reads about Mordecai. And at this time, he realizes, wait, what was done for him? We talk a lot in this book about the promise and providence of God, the promises of God that God says, I will be faithful in these things, the providence of God that is God saying, I am working even if you don't see me working. I'm working behind the scenes. Because God here is working in a way that Mordecai and Esther had not even thought of. He is working for their good and the good of his people, and most importantly, for the good of his kingdom. I've mentioned this before. You know, I talked about um, the Navajos and, and, and having church there I never even prayed for that because it was totally outside to me the realm of possibility. I couldn't even imagine it. I prayed a lot for the Navajos, for our Arizona trips when I was involved, praying that we would you know, build friendships and all these, but it never occurred to me that we could have the audacity to ask to use the chapter house for a worship service. That's too far beyond me. I couldn't imagine it. God here is working in ways that Esther and Mordecai haven't even thought of asking because he knows what's best. He knows what will make an impact for eternity rather than just right here, right now in our circumstances. He's working for their good. He's working for the good of his people. And he's most importantly working for the good of his kingdom. When God works in our lives, I want you to understand the first and foremost thing is he's working for the good of his kingdom. So we have this random discovery. And now we have a shocking reversal. Verse 4. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole he'd set up for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. All right. So, so what's going on here? Well, Haman has come early. See, Haman, he's as like I do sometimes. You ever, you ever make a to-do list? Like I do, I only do it rarely. I'm terrible about that. But every once in a while, I go, you know what? I need a to-do list today. And then what I do is I fill my to-do list with some of the important things I need to do, and then I fill it with the fluff stuff. Right? I fill it with stuff like don't forget to eat breakfast, so that I can check things off as I go, and I feel a real sense of accomplishment. 
Even if I didn't do the three big things, I did the eight little things. Stuff like that, you know. Make sure, you, you know, whatever it is. So drink enough water today, Bob. Okay, I can do that. So Haman's got his to-do list, right? He's in there early because he's got a lot to do in a limited amount of time. Um, you know, it's his to-do list. Get up early to be the first one to see the king. Yes, kill Mordecai, number two. Okay, go to Esther's banquet and have a blast. Number three, he's got his to-do list. And so there he is, just at this point, the king's going, good old Haman, man, I know that guy was good. He's here early to serve me. He's here early. In the words of a great theologian, Curly of the Three Stooges, what a dink. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing. So when Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than moi? Right? Now we see the intersection here of two powerful, self-absorbed people. They have no clue of the momentous events that are happening around them. Haman assumes this is all about him. Because Haman is always the first person on Haman's mind. The king, and you have to understand this because this is what's important in this. The king has no clue what Haman is thinking. Haman's like, this is for me. The king is thinking, help me honor this other guy. He has no clue what, what, what Haman is thinking. And that's important. And this shows us what happens when all, what, what we all, all we think about is us. We're so self-absorbed at times. We have no awareness of what other people are thinking or feeling. Like Michael Scott in the office. He's the perfect example of that, right? He has no clue what other people around him think or feel. He just tramples them all. That is the hardest show for me to watch. I walk out of the room. To honest, I walk out of the room. My wife will back this up. My daughters are here. They'll back this up. Sometimes I walk out of the room and sit in a different room and do something else while I listen. Because to watch it is just agony for my soul. And we can look at this and we can look, and, and we can look down on Haman. We can look down on Xerxes. We can look down on Michael Scott. But we have to stop and consider, how am I like them? How am I like that person? In this story, we need to apply this to our lives. How am I like Haman? Because the question then becomes some things to think about. Do your conversations revolve all around you? When someone shares something, do you have to add to it something about yourself? If some people are talking and they glance at you and kind of smile or a little chuckle, do you automatically assume they're making fun of you? Do you feel like people are constantly judging you? Do you feel like you have to present yourself a certain way so that people will like you? Do you tend to assume that you have nothing to offer people? Do you constantly put yourself down? Do you constantly build yourself up and put others down? Either one of those, the focus is on me. If I'm putting myself down, I'm like, poor me. If I'm building myself, look at me. Either way, the focus is on me. Do you enjoy making fun of people? Do you interrupt a lot? When you do something good, do you desperately hope that someone notices? This is just a few things I jotted down. It's not a full list. It may be different for you than it is for me. These came to me quickly because that's me. I can be that way. And if there's any psychologist in here, they're going, hmm, you're a dangerous man. Yes, 
Yes, I can be. I can be. One time we were having a problem with one of our kids when Little and I, I was talking to one of my daughters because something had happened and I was suspecting I wasn't getting the full story. And so I was pressing and pushing a little bit and she started crying. And finally she said, Daddy, I think you think I'm lying. And I was like, you might be. I said, look, your brothers and sisters lie. I can lie. Look at your mom. She lies all the time. It's, a, it's something. It's part. <sighs> I don't know if I exactly said that, but I'm going to pay for it either way. Um, it's in our human. I said, I, but, I, but I said to her, I said, this is our human nature. We, we can lie. If we get into a situation where we feel like there's no way out that, other than that, that may cause us to suffer, I may lie. I'm just like you are. And so that's what I'm just sitting down saying, I just desperately want you to tell me the truth. That means more to me than anything else. You telling me the truth means more to me than figuring out exactly what happened. I just want to know what the truth is. Because we can be Haman. We can. Given the right circumstances, given the right amount of power, given the right amount of money, we can be Haman. Apart from God working in our lives, we could end up just like him. We can be self-centered, vindictive, and egotistical. We can all be this way. It's just that people who are in power can get away with it easier. And so we judge Haman, but we need to take a moment to see ourselves. All right? Think about ourselves for a moment before we put ourselves in a position of judgment. Now that we thought about ourselves, I want to mock Haman. So what a maroon, you know? I just can't believe what he's thinking here. It, 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 he, he's getting himself into such a bad position because his self-centeredness has blinded him. And he's about to seal his doom. So he answered the king. He's just said, mm, who would the king rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them put a royal robe the king has worn. And on a horse the king is ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Then let them robe, then let, then let, yeah, let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on a horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. All right? Now, Haman, we read this, eh, Haman's playing a real dangerous game right here. Because here's the thing, if the king had any inkling that Haman thought this reward was for Haman, Haman has walked right up to the line of treason. He could lose his life in an instant over this. Why? Because he's asking for things that he should, nobody should dare ask for. The king's clothes especially the robe, the royal robe is a sign of royalty. No one else can wear that. No one can ride the king's horse, just the king. The royal crest is basically a sign that says, I'm the king. I'm equal with the king. So you see what Haman has done here. He's pushed up to the line of treason, and the king doesn't understand that he's pushing up the line of treason because he thinks he's saying it for someone else. But Haman is saying it for himself. This best robe, the word there is, 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 is an important word. It means the, very, the one the honor, most honored robe that the king owns. 
We see this, and this is something that was uh, throughout that, those ages in that area. It's very, very important. This is from the story of the prodigal son. The son said to the father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father said to the servants, quick, that's important, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandal on his feet. Why? Because in that time, a son who dishonored his father was worthy of death. Now, they didn't always kill him, but they did some terrible things to sons who dishonored their father. This son dishonored his father in the most visible way, because if you read that story, you got to understand who gets an inheritance, a person whose dad has died. This son is asking for their inheritance. What is he saying? I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. Let's face it, we're dead to each other. Just give me my money and let me get out of here. What an incredible thing for a son to say to his father, right? And so this son has dishonored his father. If the villagers see this son walking up to his father, they're coming for him. They're going to beat the crap out of that kid, right? So what does the father do? Put my robe on him. They can't hit someone wearing my robe. Give him my signet ring, the ring of authority, the ring that says, Anything I say is like the father saying it. Give him these sandals, the sandals of a freed man, not a slave. And so the father is, he's, he's showing love to his son, but he's rescuing his son at the same time from a very dangerous fate. So this robe thing is a huge deal, right? It's a huge deal. And then he's, you know, let him lead him through the streets. Now, I want you to understand something. This is not going to be like some guy they hired to just lead a horse. And they said, oh, by the way, while you're leading the horse, read this. This is the one the king decided to honor. You know, it's, that's, that's not what's going on. This is that idea that there's going to be a parade. This is going to be a huge, there's going to be, you know, like we lo- I love parades. You, you love the bands and the floats and all that kind of stuff. I love parades. This is going to be a parade. I mean, there's going to be trumpets playing. There's going to be all kinds of stuff going on to say, this is the one. See. This is a person. This is how he honors. Look at his robe. Look at the horse. Look at the crest. This is how the king honors those who are loyal to him. So be loyal and you may get one of these. It's an incredible honor. We notice in that previous passage, the word honor is mentioned three times by Haman. He's focused on that. Haman is focused on honor. He's focused on glory which is the way we are. In the Bible, when it talks about this, it tells us that at some point in the past, we lost glory. We gave it up. And God is in the business of restoring that glory for us through his son, Jesus. We lost the meaning, the purpose, the reason we are here. And I mean, if you think about it, you think about it, And all the stuff we think is so important. All the stuff in our lives that we think is so important. What will it matter in a hundred years? What will it matter in a thousand years? Nothing. Nothing. No one will remember you a thousand years from now. No one will remember me a thousand years from now. It won't matter. Unless there's some things that are done that tie in with the reason why God has placed us on this earth and it has eternal significance so that it matters a hundred years from now, so that it matters a thousand years from now. Why, why do we get involved in the port ministry? 
because ministering to the least of these will matter a thousand years from now. Why do we get involved in Arizona? Because ministering to the Navajos will matter a thousand years from now. Why do we get involved in ministries to China, in ministries to Bulgaria, in ministries to the Dominican Republic, people, people, people that we support as a church? Why, do we, why does that matter? Because in a thousand years, it will matter. It's the only thing that lasts. The only thing the Bible says that lasts is the word of God and people. That's it. So we need to figure out what matters. That has been built into us. Every one of us, every, one of, every person here, you want to do something that means something. Why do you think that is? It's built into you. It's in your DNA. You want to matter. You want your life to have meaning and purpose because God made you that way. And so now the key is to figure out wherever you have placed me, God, how do I do things that matter. Because I know it's kind of cliche, but I, and I've said it, but it is true. A thousand years from now, for some of us here, you're going to be in heaven, and some Navajo is going to walk up to you and say, you don't know me, but you had a part. I came to know Jesus, and I'm here with you because of you. That matters. That's important that lasts. And so Haman, like us, he's a glory grabber. And God sent Jesus to deal with this. There's a lot of things God sent Jesus to deal with, but one of them is Jesus gave up his glory to be able to restore us the glory that we've lost. So when we see Haman, we need to remember that he is us. We need to remember the way of Jesus is the way of service. We need to remember that true joy and meaning is found in serving others, not putting ourselves first. In Mark 10, Jesus says he called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Those that are in positions of power and authority, they lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must, must be your servant. Whoever wants to be the first must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He says, I'm turning the whole thing upside down. This is the way people think. I'm flipping it. I'm doing the opposite. And the strange thing is, you're going to find joy there. Not so with you, he says. Not so with you, First Church. I was thinking about this, how we can be this way of glory grabbers. And sometimes I, 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 I remember when I was in college, oh, when I was in college, I, I played soccer. And um, one year I had a really good season and they were having a little thing for the all-conference team. And I convinced myself I was going to make the all-conference team. I led the team in scoring. Um, I had other things, you know, minutes played and different things like that. So when they announced the all-conference nomination from our team, it was this guy. I'm not going to name him because he doesn't live too far from here. <laughs> he is a midfielder. So they said, this is our all-conference player. And they said he led the team in assists. And I was bitterly disappointed because I wanted to stand up and say, yeah, but how many goals did he score? Like three? 
But uh, yeah, see, yeah, some of you are like, good, Bob. Yes, I can be, I can be. And then when they announced honorable mention, they announced me. And they said he led his team in scoring. And I wanted to say, you know, the thing that makes teams win. But I didn't say that. And I'm not bitter at all. <sighs> I was totally self-absorbed. I was totally self-absorbed. I couldn't see a person who was my friend and have joy for that person because of what I felt like I had been robbed of. And God convicted me of that and dealt with me because, because in Christ, we can celebrate for others even if we lose by it. And in Christ, others can celebrate for us and it does not overwhelm us and get, go straight to our head. So the very end here, he's, he says, go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you've suggested. I mean, there is good humor here. This is dark humor, but it's good. Um, do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Can you imagine? And he said, do this for, uh, what was his name? Oh yeah, Mordecai, you ever heard of him? Small, yeah, he's the Jew guy. You find him, right? Yeah. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. And Haman got the robe and the horse, and he robed Mordecai and put him on the horseback through the city streets. And Haman had to proclaim, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Can you imagine? Haman's like, yes, this is, I love this. Oh, I love this. It'll make me the most important person in the kingdom. And he's like, great idea, Haman. Do it for Mordecai. And so this turns. Mordecai, a civil servant, a part of the bureaucracy, receives this great honor. The Bible constantly teaches us that in the end, the righteous will be exalted. But remember, there were years between the assassination plot and Mordecai saves the king's lives and life and the king honoring him. And during those years, Mordecai saw nothing. And it would have been easy to feel like, man, stinking king, I saved his life. You may be in a situation that looks hopeless. God has not answered your prayers the way you feel like they should be answered. It may feel like he's absent, or it may feel like he's not listening, or it may feel like he's not even there. And I'm sure Mordecai felt this. But what do you think Mordecai would tell you now? For years, he went unrecognized as things got worse and worse. And I'm sure it seemed like it would never happen. I'm sure he gave up on that dream. There may be things that you're worried about. There are things that you're stressed about. There are things that you're praying about. And maybe it's been years and years Mordecai knows how that feels. You may feel like your job is not adequate. You may have a terrible job and you hate it. It may be family issues. You worry for a child. You may be a child that worries for your parents. And now with Christmas coming, that's all coming front and center. There may be financial pressures. There may be marriage or relationship pressures. You may be struggling with depression, with anxiety, with physical issues. There may be sickness. There may be all kinds of things going on. And you don't See God doing anything about it. And Mordecai said, I saw what he did finally. He does not, he does, he hears the prayers of his servants, but he works in a way that's best for his kingdom. Because if Mordecai had been rewarded earlier, then the king would not have asked for Haman early that morning. Morning. And there wouldn't have been the grand reversal. So that Esther's plan might still have worked, but Mordecai would have died. God saved Mordecai's life, and he didn't even know it. He never saw it, never saw it coming. 
So, random discovery, shocking reversal, a devastating fall. Just real quick, afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. You know, it's kind of funny. They tell him, Haman, man, dude, it's too bad. Sucks to be you because you're in deep trouble. They were the ones that told him to kill Mordecai. Hey, make a big pole and stick him on it, right? I can imagine Haman going, why didn't you tell me this yesterday? But there is something interesting here. They see something. They say, since Mordecai is a Jew, And they're saying there's something bigger at play here than just Mordecai. They're acknowledging the providence of God in this situation. So God is working. Things are not okay, but God's hand can be seen. Next chapter, we'll look at this banquet where everything unfolds. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your time. Thank you for this time. (laughs) Thank you that you love us. Thank you that even when I just say prayers off the top of my head, you listen. But Lord, we thank you also that your promises are true and your providence, you are working even if we don't see it. Lord, we ask to see it. We would love to see you working. We would love to see your hand in our lives to encourage us, to help us through these difficult times. And so, Father, we ask for that. But also, Lord, we thank you that even if we never see it, you are working, you are loving, and you are accomplishing your plans to grow your kingdom. And we thank you that we can be involved in something that will last for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering. Again, if you're a guest, please don't feel pressured to give. This is what our regular tenders and our members do as a part of their worship.